Well, it's an exciting day here at Wilderness, especially at the next service. We've got three young men that are going to get baptized at the end of the 11 o'clock, which is exciting. They're my friend's kids, and so it's really cool to see your friend's kids make these decisions early and to understand what that commitment makes and to follow through on the act of baptism. And we got a few more coming up in the next few weeks. One of the guys that went through our young man's advance a couple weeks ago is probably going to get baptized in the next few weeks. We met about that on uh, Friday. But I want to take this Sunday to talk about the idea of baptism, and I want to look at Jesus' baptism. I think that's the perfect place to go. Uh, Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and this story is told in all four of the gospel accounts. I'm going to be in Luke 3 today, and there's so much in this passage. There's a lot to talk about. I just want to really clarify what baptism is, what John the Baptist's message was, what Jesus was doing when he got baptized, what it means for us to get baptized. So I got a lot to get to this morning, but I'm going to set it all up. In Luke 3, verse 1, it's kind of telling us the time period. Again, this is a historical account, and this kind of sets all that up for us. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the reason of Ituria and Traconius and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene. The key is to just read really fast through those and pretend like you know how to say them. Um, during the high priest of Annas and Sophias. Again, this is a historical account. It gives us the religious leaders of the day by name, and it gives us the state leaders. It goes all the way down from like national to the local leaders. It tells you who all those people are, and it gives you some indication of who is in power in this time, and that kind of helps us establish the date of Jesus' baptism to roughly A.D. 29, that's what all of that stuff does. He's, he's telling us, okay, go fact check me. I'm not lying about this. These were the people that were in power when all this stuff was going on. And uh, then something very important happens. It says, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, I want to give a little backstory on John the Baptist. There's a whole lot there that I probably don't have time for. But Luke's gospel tells us that John was the miraculous son of of Zechariah. He had been given to Zechariah in his old age and that his wife Elizabeth was already past menopause with no kids. And so the birth of John was a miracle. It was foretold by the angel Gabriel to his dad, Zechariah. So there's a lot of backstory about this. And in Luke 1, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they were together when they were both pregnant, Elizabeth with John, Mary with Jesus. And Luke 1.36 tells us that when they were together, that the babies left in their womb uh, when they were close to each other, that they were pregnant at the same time, which is just a really cool story. Um, John was a wild man. He lived in the wilderness. He wore clothes made of camel hair. He lived on locusts and wild honey. He was the ultimate outside-of-the-system, anti-establishment guy. And in Luke 7.28, and it also talks about it in Matthew 11, Jesus said that John was the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now, that's a pretty big statement. If Jesus says you're the greatest man ever born of a woman, there's, there's a lot to this guy. And in Luke 1, verse 76, it says, Zechariah prophesied that John would become a prophet. His dad said that this would happen, who would preach and teach and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And so we see this kind of prophecy come into fruition as we're told that the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. And that kind of lines up with Old Testament stuff. There's 222 occasions, at least, there may be more than that, where it says that the word of the Lord came to someone. 
and it was usually a prophet. And so this is God revealing himself to the prophets that they would be his mouthpiece. On occasion, they would be his penmanship. You know, they would write these books to articulate God's message to the world. And so it says that the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. He's the son of Zechariah. He lives out in the wilderness. Again, he's not part of this whole establishment that he outlines for us, that Luke outlines for us in verses 1 and 2. Um, Luke was telling us who the secular political leadership was of the day, and he tells us who the spiritual Judaic leadership of the day was, and he tells us right up front, John is not part of either one of those camps. He is under the jurisdiction of none of those people, not the government, not the church, um, and that's why prophets kind of tend to walk out of the woods. They, they, this guy didn't belong to Caesar. He didn't belong to the temple. He just belonged to God. And he was able to kind of step out of the wilderness and call a nation to repentance, to be people of God, um, because there was corruption on both sides. And because John wasn't a part of either side, he could call it like he saw it. Verse 3 of Luke 3 says, And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John goes out into all the region around the Jordan River, um, the whole area that was kind of sustained by that river system. And we know that John baptized a lot of people, including Jesus, in that river. And my friend Aaron Hines has painted a picture that kind of depicts this scene. And I love Aaron's painting. He didn't really focus on the actual moment of Jesus going underwater or coming back up. He just kind of speaks to the, the spectacle that John the Baptist would have drawn. That these people were on the side of the river. People were coming out in droves to see him. It was an attraction. It was something people wanted to see. It was a spectacle. And what I think is interesting is where the Jordan River begins, there's two different streams, one from Mount Hermon and one from a place called Dan. And those two places are about seven miles apart. What's interesting to me historically, we don't see this in Scripture, but we know historically, that at the top of that spring at Mount Hermon that eventually fed into the Jordan River, there was a temple dedicated to the god Pan. And there were a lot of earthquakes in that region because they thought that the gods were angry, and that's where we get the word panic, pan, panic. Uh, earthquakes would make you panic, and that's why that word means what it means. And so at that top of that stream on Mount Hermon, they had built an altar where they would make blood sacrifices um, to the god Pan. And so it's possible that downstream from there, while, Jordan, while he is baptizing people in the Jordan River, that he's literally doing that with blood from blood sacrifices, maybe even being in that water. where He's literally waist deep in like pagan worship. So all of this happens, this scene that, that Aaron's painted, this happens in the middle of a whole lot of different stuff. There's, they, these are not all people that believe in God. They believe in different gods. They're worshiping different gods. There's a lot going on in this scene. And then in, it says, with well, the verse I just read, that, that he comes into the region of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And there's three big ideas of John's message. They use a lot of Old Testament language. And the first part of his three-part message was one, your problem is sin by choice and by nature. And we know in the Old Testament, King David, who was said to be a man after God's own heart, he claimed that he was wicked from his mother's womb. And so we can assume the same thing, that as sons and daughters of Adam, that his sin nature kind of gets passed down to us. We are sinful by nature. And the result of that is that we commit acts of sin. And the only way to deal with the act of sin is to deal with the condition of sin. But either way, 
Our problem is sin, and, and John the Baptist talks about that all the time. He had an answer for that. The problem is sin. The answer is repentance. And repentance is a change of heart and a change of mind. It is acknowledgement of the holiness and goodness of God, that we are sinful, that he is holy, and that the problem is that we're apart from him, and we got to fix that, out, fix that with repentance. So repentance is turning from sin to God by faith through Jesus. And finally, John's message was that this is demonstrated in baptism. And historically, baptism has a lot of context. The Jews would have practiced baptism in a few different ways. For most people that were born Jewish, it was used for ritual purification. It was done to just show that you had been cleansed. It was something you did before you made sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. But for people who were Gentiles or non-Jewish who wanted to convert to Judaism, they would do what they call proselyte, proselyte, sorry, mispronounced that word. It's got a Y in there. It makes it hard. Proselyte baptism. And so a proselyte baptism is, is kind of a conversion thing. They would be baptized in order to identify themselves with the people of God and the cleansing of their sin. So those were the two kind of historical contexts for baptism, but that's not what John was doing. John was baptizing Jews in the baptism of repentance, and that would have been really unusual. Um, it, it would have been really weird for somebody, a man who was not a Levite, he wasn't a part of the priesthood, he wasn't working on behalf of the temple, he just walks out of the woods, preaches like a prophet of old, people show up, they repent of their sin, and he baptizes Jewish people in the Jordan River, which would have been really bizarre. And I think Aaron's painting depicts what it would have looked like. It would have been a sideshow. It would have been an attraction. There would have been a lot of confrontation, people that didn't believe in John's message. And his message was hard. Um, there was a ton of pagan worship, again, in that region. And so the, he was in the middle of, of a firestorm. And a lot of people were showing up just to see what was going to happen. And in verse 4, it says, It is written in the, book of the uh, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. He shows us that the prophecy about the coming one who would prepare the way for Jesus, that that was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Verse 5 says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John the Baptist's message was that God is going to come as our Savior, and He's going to save us from our sin and from the consequences of our sin, which includes death and damnation, separation from God. So the good news with John's message was that, hey, we have a Savior. God's taking care of this for us. The bad news is that you have to respond accordingly. You have to repent. And that was a hard message. In fact, John gets pretty aggressive with some of the religious leaders that showed up to see what was going on in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Now, even today, to call somebody a snake is a pretty negative term, right? And for a Jewish person who understood like Genesis 3, the fall, the snake, the serpent, all that stuff had a lot of, had a lot of meaning there. And nobody today would want to be called a snake. Definitely an insult. And these were people that were coming out to hear John preach, and he's being kind of mean to them, man. He's calling them names. Uh, he's, he's hitting them with the heavy stuff right off the bat. And in verse 8, he tells them you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, 
We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this is why John was so riled up about this stuff. These people that were coming to see him were very religious. And John calls religious people a brood of vipers. And when we think of repentance, we think of like calling sinners to repent of their sin. So if you're a drunk, you got to quit drinking. If you're a glutton, you got to quit eating. If you're an adulterer, you got to quit cheating. If you're a thief, you got to quit stealing. You got to repent of those things, quit doing those things, and just live a nice, pious life. But that's only half true. That's only half of John's message. The other half is that religious people need to repent of their religion. And you don't hear this talked about nearly as much. The people that came to hear John the Baptist were devout religious people. They had taken their days off work. They came out to hear a preacher. They wanted to hear a prophet of old. They wanted to learn about God. They wanted to be cleansed from their sin. They wanted to come down to the river and get baptized. And John rebukes them and calls them all brood of vipers. Why? Because they were religious. And Paul in the New Testament calls religion in Philippians 3, he calls it garbage, rubbish. It's, it's, it's something that we do for God that God does not appreciate. Religion is man's effort to please God. And religion is man's effort to connect with God apart from Jesus. And religion is man's effort to earn merit from God by our own works, by our own performance, by our own duty, holiness, piety, legacy, whatever. We want the favor of God and we try to earn it. And the Bible would teach that God doesn't like that because God is a God of grace. And God does not offer salvation because we earn it, because all of us are undeserving of what he wants to give us. That God gives love, salvation, mercy, and grace as a gift, and religion wants you to earn it so that you can be smug and self-righteous and proud of what you've done that nobody else could pull off. And so the people of the day... They, they would have been through all the religious rules, and, and, and that would have been expressed through what they wore, where they went, what they ate, what they drank, um, because they believed if they obeyed all these religious rules, then they would be closer to God, they would be holier, and they would be better than everybody else. And they would have signified that religious merit that they had earned through their religion through their clothing. So when they showed up with their robes on, and they were looking all ornate and all that kind of stuff, it was real easy for John to spot them in the audience. And John didn't really welcome them. He called them snakes. And the same thing can happen today in Christianity. We, we Christians love to make up rules that aren't in the Bible, right? And we subscribe to those rules thinking that somehow God's going to be pleased because, I mean, God wrote a book, so we're just going to keep adding on to the book and uh, hope that all these extra stuff that we add on is what God wants. But religion is the love of tradition in the place of Jesus. And there are plenty of churches, there's plenty of people who would much rather cling to their tradition, cling to their history, cling to their ancestry, their physical location, their lineage, their language, other than Christ. And John would say that that's an offense to God. That, that's a sin. And we got to repent of that too. Trying to earn God's love through religion only ends in one of two ways. Either you pull it off and now you're prideful. You did what nobody else could do, so you're awesome. Everybody else sucks. Doesn't that make you good? That's self-righteousness. That's pride. Nobody likes that person. Nobody needs to want to be that person. Or it leads to despair. You tried. You tried to follow all the rules, but you couldn't. So you're not very good. You're a failure, and there, what's the point in all of this? That's the only two places religion leads. 
pride, and despair. And neither one of those places are somewhere we want to be. And so religious people call sinners to repent all the time. But just like 2,000 years ago, nobody ever tells religious people to repent of their religion. But that's exactly what John's message was. And Jesus was in line with that. And that's why people are attracted to Jesus in a way that they're not attracted to religion. And at the same time, people are repelled by Jesus in a way that they're not repelled by religion. That's just the reality. They're two different messages. And when you hear about Jesus, that he lived the life that you couldn't live, that you can't live, that you're not going to be able to live, that he died the death that you should have died, and that he rose to give you a gift that you cannot earn, at that point, when you understand that, you're liberated from religion. And I think there's plenty of us that need to repent from sin, but I think there's probably some of us that need to repent from religion and tradition. Those man-made rules, legalism, moralism, that is apart from the grace of Jesus, and that's exactly what John's message was. He does all this right there on the Jordan River. He calls the religiously devout people snakes. He's making fun of them. It's a rebuke. And he already knew what their answer was going to be. He knew they were going to say, well, you don't know us. We're children of Abraham. Our father is the guy who started this whole thing. And John wasn't impressed by that at all. Um, And I think this is why, and I think this is why biblical history is so important. Do you know what Abraham was when God talked to him for the first time? He wasn't a Jew then. He was just a Gentile. In fact, he came from the same area as the Tower of Babel. We're told in the book of Acts that it was probably the land of the Chaldeans. So Abram, before God changed his name, was not originally a worshiper of Yahweh or God. He, he was a pagan. And God came to him in grace, and it says that Abraham trusted God, believed in by faith in the Lord, and that in that moment what was credited to him was righteousness. That righteousness came to Abraham the way it comes to all of us, by faith, not by work, by the works of Jesus, not by our own performance, by his perfection, not by our tradition. And so John would tell this group of people, if they tried to say, no, listen, we're children of Abraham, he would say, don't tell me that Abraham's your dad. You're not saved by birth. That's not what this is. Abraham trusted in the coming of the Messiah, and you should do that too. So John is teaching, you're saved by a new birth. It's not who your father is. It's now who your heavenly father is. And it's not your tradition, it's not your ancestry, it's not your race, it's not your nationality that's going to get you closer to God. It's your Savior. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. And so in verse 10, it says that the crowds look at him and they're like, they ask him, what shall we do? And he answers them. He gives them some really straightforward, practical advice. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And in verse 12, it says, Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Don't steal from people. Just simple actions out there. Don't steal from anybody. Verse 14, Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. John told them with some very straightforward, practical direction advice that you need to live a life of repentance. Live a life of repentance. And I want to kind of spend some time explaining that idea. The first part of living a life of repentance is this idea of conviction. It all starts with conviction. You acknowledge that you're a sinner, and that conviction can come through you reading the Bible. It can come through hearing somebody teach the Bible. It can come through the Holy Spirit 
through your own conscience, through other Christian friends who are talking to you in your life. But through one way or another, you realize that you're not living in obedience with God's character and with God's commands. And so there's this conviction. You feel bad about it. And there's an acknowledgement in your conscience and in your heart that something's wrong and you need to change. There's parts of you that aren't the way they need to be, so you got to change stuff. That's conviction. The next part is confession. The next step is you talk about it. You tell somebody. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, that God will be faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. And so when it comes to the idea of confession, we have to let people know the things in our life that need to change. we got to talk about it with friends, with people in our church, with your family, with your spouse. You talk about it. And you don't just talk about it like in general terms. You need to learn to talk about the particular sin in your life. It's not just sitting down with a group of people saying, yeah, you know, I'm struggling with some things. Pray for me. Good deal. Done. No. Confession is saying, you know what? There's a problem in this specific area, and I want to grow here. This needs to stop. This needs to die. I need to change this about myself. I need God's grace to help me transform, and I need his love to redeem me. But we're talking about this specific thing. And when convicted... You feel like something is wrong, and then with confession, we talk about it. We acknowledge it. We bring it out in the open. We're only as bad as our secrets, and we would rather let everybody know about what's going on in our life than be a hypocrite in private. That's not what anybody wants to be. So that's confession. The third one is repentance. Repentance starts in the mind. It's a change of mind, a change of direction. Jesus becomes the center of your life. You are no longer the center of your life. You want to do what pleases God, not what satisfies your selfish desires. And so repentance is literally means turning, a change of direction, a change of mind. It's an ongoing lifestyle. That's that practical advice that John was giving the tax collectors and, and the soldiers. Don't rip people off. Be good to people. Change of direction. Uh, it's continually growing in grace and Christ-likeness. It's something that continues until Jesus' final kingdom is established. And in church history, and the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther like, they split from the Catholic Church and he nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, the very first line of that was this. This is a quote from Martin Luther, and it, it sums this up. He says, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. And the issue of repentance is, is really the whole point of the Christian life. And I think a lot of people have been taught, and if this was you, I want to correct that because I think you've been taught wrongly, that you just repent once, and then you're saved, and then you can get baptized, and then you can just go on doing whatever you want to do for the rest of your life. That's not John's message. That wasn't Jesus' message. Repentance is a lifestyle for Christians. All right, It changes everything about us. And today we live in a time where people are not called to repent. In fact, we let people get by with their intentions. They're like, well, my whole life's a wreck, but I never meant for it to be. You know, I intended things to go well, but that doesn't really get you anywhere. Intentions don't matter. Change of direction leads to a different destination, but that's not a popular message. Nobody wants to hear that. And so today, we often are called to be tolerant and to tolerate diversity and to be loving and to be gracious and accommodating to people. And all of those things are definitely good things. But you're not loving somebody if it enables their destruction, right? If, if, if you're loving somebody and you're allowing them to destroy their life under the umbrella of tolerance and diversity, that's, that's not really loving them, right? That, that's messing them up. We're supposed to call people to repentance not because we hate them, but because we love them. 
and we don't want to accommodate their sin. We don't want to see them going in the wrong direction. We don't want to see them involved in damaging behavior. We want them to defeat their sin so that they can live a new life. And so repentance is just this gift that God gives us. It's an opportunity that he gives to believers, but it's really easy to get it confused. And so a pastor that I really admire and follow, he, he did a study on the banks of the Jordan River about this passage, and he listed out uh, some, some counterfeit repentance. And I think he kind of hits the nail on the head. Some of these things may be a little bit offensive, but so is John the Baptist, so we'll go down the list. Counterfeit repentance. Here's what happens, and there's a few of these counterfeit examples of repentance. The first one is mere confession. Repentance is not just confession, where you say you did it, but then you just keep doing it. And we all know that person, right? The person who constantly apologizes, they're sorry, they're sorry, they're sorry, but they're not really sorry because they still haven't stopped doing it, right? That, that's just confession. That's not repentance. The second one is religious repentance. True repentance is not religious repentance. Religious repentance is where you see everybody else's sin and you repent of everybody else's sin, uh, but real repentance is dealing with your own sin. And Jesus told this parable in the New Testament about two men that went to a temple to pray, and one guy prays, hey, God, thank you so much that I'm better than everybody else. That was his prayer, pretty much. That's religious repentance. You're praying about everybody else's life and business and sin, but not yours. That's religious repentance. And we see this in the church all the time. All right? There's plenty of Baptist preachers preaching against the sins of abortion to a church full of people who have never had an abortion or needed one. It's not even an issue they're dealing with, but they feel real good about dogging everybody outside of their little circle of friends. It's not even an issue they're dealing with, but it's something easy for them to harp on to make them feel good about how much better they are than everybody else. That's religious repentance. That's not, that's not John's message at all. That you need to know as a Jesus follower, as a Christian, as a pastor, I'm not judging anybody. I'll leave that to him. I would certainly encourage you towards repentance, but it's not my job to be preoccupied with your sin. I have plenty of my own to deal with. All right. Religious repentance is not real repentance. The third one is worldly sorrow. True repentance is not just worldly sorrow. Paul told the Corinthians that they were practicing this thing right here. This is where you feel bad, but you don't change anything. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in. There's not a new heart. There's not a new life. There's not new desires. There's not a new Lord in Jesus. So the result is that you just feel bad about it, and you're a failure, but you don't do anything about it. And non-Christians feel bad about stuff, too. I mean, you, at least once a month, we see some celebrity go on an apology tour, right? I saw Whoopi Goldberg made some new ones this week, right? She's got to apologize for something she said six months ago, trying to fix her career. And they feel so bad, and they make a large donation to some kind of charity, and everybody says, well, they feel bad, so I'm glad that's over. But that's not repentance. That's worldly sorrow. You feel bad about something that you did, but you're not really going to change it. Pagan repentance. This is where you're repenting in hopes that once you repent, God will give you something that you want. The pagans would try and manipulate God to bless them, and that still slips into Christianity today. And so you think, you know what, God, I want to be healthy. I want to have plenty of money. I want to be successful, or maybe I want to get married, or I want my kids to listen to me. So I'm going to repent, and I'm going to tell God I'm sorry, so he'll give me what I want. That's pagan repentance. That's trying to manipulate God to be good, but God already is good, and he doesn't need to be manipulated. Uh, the other one, this is something that I think everybody struggles with, I do for sure, is just general repentance. 
And it's where somebody does something they shouldn't have done, sin, and they say, you know, you messed up here. You hurt some people. It's bad. You need to fix this. And then they generally repent. They just go, well, yeah, you're right. You know, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. See you next time. That's not repentance. There has to be something specific about the thing that you're not going to do anymore. And then the last one, and probably the most painful, especially for me, if you feel like your toes are getting stepped on, mine are too, is excuse making. We want to have all the excuses for why we're living the life we're living. And so we say, you know what, I've sinned because my genetics predispose me toward alcoholism or gluttony or anger. You know, like I'm Italian, you know, us Italian people or, you know, us Irish Catholic people or, you know, I'm Latino and we are, and I'm ginger. You know, we're angry all the time. And it's amazing that every single group of people kind of has those exceptions built in for themselves, right? And so we say things like based on our culture or we say things based on our personality, you know, or like I've taken the Meyer-Briggs test, or I know my Enneagram number, and this is just the way I am. And, uh, you know, we all have our personality types, and unpleasant, mean, and harsh is my personality type, and you're just going to have to deal with it. That's, that's an excuse, right? And we see this all the time with kids. I've seen it this week with my kids and lots of my friends' kids, right? One kid punches a kid in the face. For really doesn't seem like any reason. And then you ask the kid, hey, why did you punch your brother, sister, friend in the face? And they say, well, they made me. They made me punch him in the face. Really? I mean, they took your hand and just drove it into their face? That's what happened? And they're like, well, no. I mean, they had a toy I wanted, and so I punched them in the face. Well, technically, they didn't make you punch them in the face. You chose to do that. And those things start when we're little. We all have excuses for our behavior. We blame, shift to other people and other things. We shift the burden to others. We change the subject, but that's not repentance. Repentance says, no, 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 no. I'm a sinner. That's true. And I need to change, and I'm sorry about that. So please forgive me. Jesus forgives me, and he helps me, and I want to change. I, I want the Holy Spirit to help me. Those, these other fake things, they can look like repentance, but they're not. And a life of repentance is, starts with conviction, then goes to confession, and then repentance, the actual change of direction, followed by restitution. It's kind of the, the final piece, and that's what John was telling the tax collector and the soldiers, like, don't rip people off. Be good to people. Um, from condition, conviction to confession to repentance to restitution. And, again, this isn't penance. Like, you're not going to repay the debt of your sin. Restitution, as John the Baptist says, is, hey, if you're ripping people off, stop ripping people off. If you're stealing stuff, stop stealing stuff. If you've been greedy and you've been coveting other people, stop doing that and start celebrating the blessings of life in the, of God in the life of other people. And so it's an ongoing lifestyle of repentance that can include restitution. We should apologize to people and tell them that we're sorry. We should pay back what, we're, what we've stolen, we should make amends. And when they ask why, we have the ability in that moment to say, you know why? Because Jesus loves me. And my sin was so bad that he had to die for it, but he has sent me here to apologize, and I know I can't make it 100% right, but I just want to show you that I'm sorry and that I've changed, and I hope that you can forgive me the way that God has forgiven me. It's a demonstration of the gospel of grace. And so John calls this crowd to repentance. He invites them to make a public proclamation of those things through getting baptized in the Jordan River. 
And in verse 21, it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And this is kind of the, the scene that my friend Aaron captured in his painting. But when Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And we see in that moment kind of the triune God, God the Father speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and the Son Jesus all in that moment. And they are loving, saving, seeking, and serving sinners. It's a pretty amazing picture at Jesus' baptism. And Jesus was not baptized for the repentance of sin. He didn't have any sin. But we know he was baptized for at least two reasons. The first one was to identify with the ministry of John, to let people know, hey, his message is right. You are supposed to repent and be baptized. And I came to fulfill that. But then also he came to be baptized to foreshadow his own death, burial, and resurrection so that repentance would be possible for all of us. And that's the bottom line, that the penalty of sin is death. And the debt of sin will be paid in one of two ways. Either we will die and spend eternity apart from God, or we will accept Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection as payment. But either way, the price has to be paid. And so in being baptized, Jesus is showing that all of your repentance and the cleansing that you desire and the new life that you're looking for, I'm going to make that possible. This baptism is all about me, and we truly believe that here at Wilderness. Baptism is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we, as a church, and me personally as a pastor, I would love to baptize any of you who have decided to repent of your sin, that conviction, confession, repentance, restitution, and trust in Jesus enough to follow him for the rest of this life and the next. And so when we baptize these young men at the end of this next service, in that moment we're celebrating what God has done in their life, but it's still all about Jesus. We want to, make it, we want to be careful not to make it all about religion or tradition. And it's not about doing this thing so that God will love you and so that God will save you or so that God will forgive you or that God would care for you. It's, it's saying that Jesus already has done that, that your sins are forgiven in Jesus, that you are loved and embraced by God. And so baptism is a public proclamation of repentance. It illustrates Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we baptize by immersion. There's reasons for sprinkling. There's plenty of places where there's not enough drinking water for a whole person to get all the way in it and come all the way back up. Um, But the reason we baptize by immersion is because that's the way Jesus was baptized, and we believe it illustrates what baptism is supposed to be. It's death raised to a new life. And here we don't baptize babies. Um, We believe that it needs to be a person's decision on their own to make to follow Jesus. Now, we do think it's really important for parents to dedicate their child to God. We do baby dedications two times a year, and that's something we take really seriously. And I have a lot of friends that were baptized as babies, and their parents' intention was nothing but good. I'm not, there's no evil intent there. They're trying to dedicate their kid. And then somewhere in life, they come to the understanding of what baptism is, and they say, you know what, I, I've never gotten baptized. I never decided to get baptized, but my parents did it when I was little, so I'm just, I think I'm good. I would encourage you to get baptized now. I would encourage you to let that be your decision. And if you're worried that it's going to make your parents mad, I don't think it will. I think that's actually going to be a fulfillment of the prayer they prayed for you when they did it when you were a baby. They wanted that for you. They wanted you to follow Jesus. And so I would encourage you to do that. 
We baptize by immersion in a public setting because that's the way that Jesus did it in the Jordan River. And it shows us what it represents, the act of baptism, going under the water, buried and alive in Christ. Um, And so we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we hope that God is convicting somebody of the sin in our lives and that we can all learn to confess that to others and to commit our lives to a lifestyle of repentance. That was John's message, and Jesus lined right up with it. And so if you're ready to take that step of baptism, not so that you can show God that you love him, but to show other people what God has done for you, then that's something we need to do. Baptism is a step of obedience. It's important. Jesus asked us to do it. But I do want to put a disclaimer on that. Don't take that step of obedience if you're not going to take the next one, all right? This baptism thing, it's not just a box to check so you can say you did everything God wanted you to do and then go back to living your life the way you want to live it. If that's what you think this is, don't do it. And don't ask me to help you do it because that's not what this is supposed to be. Baptism is to show that when he died, we died. And when he rose, he gave us a new life and that one day, that we're going to be buried as he was buried, but if we belong to him, that we'll get to be with him and for him and like him forever. That's the decision of baptism. And if you've never made that, we would love to talk with you, pray with you about that, line out a Sunday for you to do that. Uh, But we're excited to celebrate with these three young men at 11 that have done that. I know it is a big answer to their parents' prayer. I'm honored that I got to be a part of some of those conversations along the way it's a really, really big deal. And if any of y'all would like to talk about it, please let us know. It would make our day to get to take you to lunch and talk about getting baptized. That would be awesome. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the act of baptism, for the symbolism in it. We thank you for Jesus that did that as a model. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection in that, and that he called us to follow him in it. If we decide to commit our lives to him, the first thing we're supposed to do is to get baptized, to show other people that commitment. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here who hasn't taken that step, I pray that you would give them the courage to do that. But, Lord, for the rest of it, there's always another step. If we've been baptized, you're asking us to do something else that's going to be a little uncomfortable and awkward and seems outside of what we're capable of doing, which is probably a good sign that that step is from you. And so, Lord, give us all the ability and the courage and the strength to keep following you when it's hard, to keep doing the right thing even when it's not easy, and to know that the debt has been paid through Jesus, that that the work has been done, that you love us, you've shown us you love us by sending your son to die for us, and that we have victory in him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.